All right, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you're listening um, around the world. Uh, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serena Nantapuntla, and I have Dr. Cynthia Gerlin um, Safdie with me today. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast, Dr. Cynthia. Thank you for inviting me. I'm so excited to be here and talk to you today. Absolutely. So just to get things started, can you elaborate more on who you are, where you're from, and what work you've been doing? Yes, um, so I'm originally from France. Um, I'm actually half Colombian, half French, but grew up in France. Um, and I grew up at the border with Germany, speaking Spanish, French, German. Um, and I got interested in high school in geology. Um, and that was my motivation to go into earth sciences. So I went to college in Strasbourg. Uh, which is a big institute for um, seismology and earth sciences in general. And so I did my undergraduate and my master's there in geophysical engineering. Mm -hmm. And then I, as a master's student, I got a chance to um, do an internship, which I did at Princeton University. And I actually ended up staying there for a PhD uh, with, with my advisor for this short-term internship, um, Kelly Keller. And I worked on deposition, so I got interested in water and plants and how they, um, how the effect of water influences plants and their rate of carbon dioxide uptake. And then once I graduated, I went to the University of Michigan to do a postdoc, um, focusing more on satellite data and um, essentially taking data and trying to make a science product out of it because when the data comes out of the satellite, it's just a bunch of uh, engineering measurements if you want, and you kind of have to turn that into actual um, actual information that's useful for people. And uh, from there, I recently moved to Berkeley first at the Department of Energy National Lab, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, and then um, now UC Berkeley as a professor. So this is sort of my academic <laughs> slash personal um, path. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super cool that like geology, I love geology. I'm, I love collecting rocks and learning about them. Um, I have like a rock and minerals kit right in that room. And <laughs> I think I think what's really cool is that you um, kind of turn to eco hydrology. So what does it mean to be an eco-hydrologist, uh, if that's how you say it? <laughs> eco-hydrologist. Um, that's a good question. I'm actually teaching an eco-hydrology class for graduation this year, and that was the first lecture was um, I asked them, you know, to put in some words of what they thought it meant. Um, it's actually a pretty recent field. Um, it's It's been sort of really it brought together as a field in the past 20 to 30 years. Um, and um, and it's kind of, I think for a lot of people and including myself, it's, um, you know, the link between water and biological processes and how water influences the biology, usually plants, but sometimes also microbes or ecosystems more broadly but also how then the ecosystems are influencing water, are influencing water resources because some types of vegetation will take up a lot of water. Um, so sort of just this, this uh, balance between um, biological processes and water. And, you know, I think in more recent years, um, the influence of humans and sort of anthropogenic effects have, have been have become um, a bigger part of uh, the community as well because you know how are how is this this link between water and vegetation for example working in urban ecosystems when there's also a lot of pollution or like heat like island effect or right. how is um, how are like agricultural fields um, you know they're they're kind of those very special systems where we, you put in a lot of water to grow plants. Um, so, so I think that that extra um, link between humans and the ecosystems um, has also becoming a, a bigger part of what we do now. Yeah, I was also thinking about like, hmm, how do humans also affect like the work you're doing? And I think that um, agriculture is like a really cool intersection between humans, plants, and like 
uh, water. So eco-hydrology, but mm -hmm. like with human um, involvement. I think that's, I think that's really cool. So like, um, I think you mentioned earlier, like you did geology, right? So how does like geophysics and geology help you with the work you're doing now? Um, that's a interesting question. I mean, I can tell you first how I sort of went from one to the other, uh, which was that, um, so I was recruited, I was doing this master's um, in geophysical engineering, um, and I got recruited in this eco-hydrology lab, and the reason for that was that they were using geophysical tools to look at water and plants. So for example, they were using ground penetrating radar, which is a small radar that you kind of drag on the ground. And you can use it to look, if you're a geophysicist, you can look at um, at faults, like um, size, like, um, yeah, like faults in the earth. Um, right. But you can also use it for, uh, if you're an archeologist, like they use it to look at, you know, to look for walls of like ancient cities. And it turns out that uh, the lab I joined was using this method to look at roots, to map roots um, in the Kalahari Desert. Um, so, so that was that's one example, but there are sort of a whole range of geophysical methods that you can use to look at water in the soil, the amount of water um, and sort of the pattern of, of soil moisture. So the amount of water contained in soil. Um, and so that's where I sort of got recruited. And then from there, I, I, I sort of diverged a little bit away from those methods um, that got me in the first place. But um, the geophysical engineering was really just a tool to then study um, other things, including plants and water. Um, and I think it's been a valuable uh, background to have just because I think, um, first of all, I think it was a great, um, sort of training in terms of the physics. I mean, because geophysical has a lot of, of physics. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of um, electromagnetism and, and um, tools that, that are useful just in, for science in general that I think I was kind of glad to have um, as I continued uh, my training. Uh, so that, that was useful. And I think it also means that I'm a little bit more able to sometimes communicate with the more earth science crowd mm -hmm. that's uh, maybe, you know, we intersect um, when water is in the ground, in the soils, then there's sort of the intersection between people looking at plants and people looking at um, sort of the, the groundwater or the subsurface. Um, and so I think having that geophysical background has also helped me a little bit. Um, make sure that I can speak the same language and that that I know a little bit what their um, priorities are, which I think yeah. is always helpful when trying to to bridge um, disciplines or at least fields. For sure. I think um, having the ability to communicate with multiple fields or disciplines is super like valuable. And I think that really helps you, you know, cover lots of areas and mm -hmm. reach out to as many people as possible. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think like one of the one of the main things people in science need to do is like talk to the public, right? So um any like tips on how how um scientists can better like communicate with the public and any experiences you may have had? Um yeah, recently I've done a few talks in Spanish, which has been um oh, interesting wow. and um trying to kind of talk about water resources um, and how that influences both um, ecosystems, but also like, um, you know, drinking water resources. Um, and I think the key is obviously, well, the first one is to try to um, remember that a lot of people don't have um, any science background. And so you want to make sure that things are explained um, enough for everybody to follow, um, but also trying to make a connection to something that is interesting to them in particular, because if you're just talking about some place that they've never been to or some issue that they've never really thought about, um, if you don't make a connection to something that 
they can kind of anchor their um, own experience into, mm -hmm. um, then yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's hard to make it interesting. And so I think you're going to have to map your own work to uh, your audience's um, experience and, and interests. So uh, I try yeah, to do that and it's not always easy parts because you don't always know everybody's past and experience, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. um, yeah, trying to to do this as much as I can. I think language is a great way to do that, like by speaking in another language um, and trying to communicate like the, the information you're learning from your research is is like already already like a big step which because people's language like you feel great when someone can talk in the language you speak right and I think it's um I think that's super cool yeah although it's uh, yeah my Spanish sometimes is a little rusty and so it's uh, <laughs> yeah. um, um I have to sort of brush up on some of the technical more technical words and um but um it's been a lot of fun and I think it's been kind of great for me to also connect uh, through language specifically. Gotcha. Yeah, I think, yeah, the, the, the connection is extremely important and I think you're doing a great job with that. So like, um, what does eco-hydrology mean to you? Um, because you're, you're very interdisciplinary, but you're also like um, communicating with the public, which is very, very important. So what does it mean to you? Um, I mean, so in terms of, you know, the work I do, I'm, I'm specifically interested in um, sources of water that plants um, that people don't really think about often, so dew and fog, um, and how um, that uh, changes how much carbon dioxide plants take up, and then how this is going to change with climate change. Yeah. Um, and then another aspect of my research has been um, looking at um, wetlands um, and trying to bring new information about wetlands that are remote enough that we don't really have any information about them except from satellites. And so bringing a new type of satellite data to improve our maps and then use that information to make better models of how much methane those um, wetlands are going to produce um, in the future as temperature rises from climate change, essentially. So um, those are sort of the two main axes that I'm currently working on. Um, and there's sort of a lot of smaller <laughs> uh, sort of, you know, sub projects within that, but that those are the two big themes at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So like, my just like going to the research stuff right um my so so the research that I'm familiar with um I conducted like field work at um Auburn University where I just looked at um how different algicides affect algae differently and then um I would just wanted to it, it was it was a, it was a mesocosm experiment but how does field work typically like conducted in your field of research and um maybe some specific projects you've worked on in the past yeah, um, well, currently we're doing field work at uh, Point Reyes, which is um, which is a park um, just north of San Francisco, and it's kind of this peninsula um, mm -hmm. that sticks out, and there's a lot of fog coming in, and we are working oh, yeah, at, yeah, it's super pretty, um, and we work in this sort of grassy meadow um and so there's an experiment there that's going to be a long-term experiment where they are warming the soils um to reproduce uh global warming so they're warming the soils at different temperature and um my graduate student paul cyber and myself are going and we're on sort of a somewhat regular basis to do a few different things so we're installing um fog nets um so building little um sort of uh frames with uh fishing uh lines uh -huh. and then the fog essentially get caught on the those fishing line and gets collected at the bottom oh, that's so cool the bottom um so you know part of field work is uh first building those and then like going and installing them so putting them in the ground um in that in this meadow 
Um, we've also been um, going regularly and um, taking measurements of essentially um, leaf greenness. So we have this instrument that you put in, put in a backpack and then we sort of go around and we point um, uh, this, um, we point the instrument towards the ground and it just kind of gives us um, a greenness index for that patch of grass. And so we kind of go around, we have a few different locations where we've been doing this experiment or this measurement multiple times per year. And now this year was the second year. And so we go around and we, and then we can compare um, the measurements. So, you know, that's that's maybe a day worth of work every time we do all the, the plots. Um, and then we've also been deploying this big, um, it's kind of like a camera, but that looks at photosynthesis. So mm -hmm. how much CO2 is being um, transformed by plants into sugars. Um, and so oh. you go out, you set up this big tripod, um, and then you kind of take measurements um, every half hour or something like that, all day, uh -huh. same location. So you kind of have to, you know, the instrument is on the tripod, but connected to a laptop and you're just kind of turning the instrument on, like measuring um, the grass out in the field and then looking if the image looks good and then redoing this like a few times and then repacking everything <laughs> down. So, so those are some examples of what we're currently doing um, out there in the field. So it's um, sort of a more of a campaign base. So we're not going, you know, every day, but we're going on a regular basis to do some measurements um, regularly. And right now, actually, uh, it hasn't rained in California, at least in this part of California in a really long time. So the grass is is yellow, it's very dead. We're not really going out right now oh, because yeah. um, we're essentially waiting for the rain, which uh, should come in October. So that's sort of when our season starts again, um, the winter and late fall, winter, and then beginning of spring is sort of when we go out and, and do things. Gotcha. So you, so you like, you kind of are seeing some of the current impacts of climate change, right? You've got like increased wildfires. So exactly. And, and we are also seeing, you know, more, um, sort of infrequent, but, uh, sometimes larger rainfall. So not so much a decrease in the total amount of rainfall, but just, um, mm. more variability in how big the events are and how frequently they're coming. Um, right. Yeah, so that's bad for like had, flash floods and things, right? Exactly. Uh, last year we had two just massive rainstorms, one in October and one in December, um, and not really much in between. <laughs> but um, there's just like, you know, orders of magnitude more uh, in one day than we usually get. So, yeah, yeah, you really, you really do see the impacts, which is like pretty, pretty scary that we're like already at that point. Mm hmm. And I think it's it's nice that your your research like focuses on climate change because it's such a like it's an it's a current issue right now. And I think that's like it's cool when when we are able to find data and conduct these experiments that allow us to like change some variables and then and then like do the same thing, but you know, changing changing the variables so that we can learn more about the future, which is which I think it's like time travel, right? You're just you can basically yeah. predict what's gonna happen. I like to, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. I don't, I don't usually put it that way, but that's, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's sort of what we're trying to do. And I think one of the scary parts about my work is that it's not sort of directly addressing climate change as much as trying to understand what's going to happen with it. Um, and sometimes, you know, I wonder if I should be searching and like trying to do something a little bit more, um, you know, directly trying to um, mitigate the effects of climate change or, or um, solve it in a way, but I mean, solve, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> marks. Um, but it seems like to do that, I should probably just go into politics. So um, <laughs> I'm ready to do that. <laughs> I think, I think it's, um, uh, it's like, there's no one solution that fits all. It's um, like you have, there's, there's gotta be, there's gonna be a different solution for everywhere. So like, just if you focus on like one area and try to think, like maybe think of a mitigated solution for it, I think that will do have a big effect on the people there. 
than just trying to find one big solution for the whole earth. So yeah, I think I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like I think one of the things you said was your the the climate the climate change um and you're studying like how does climate change affect like the carbon cycle of plants um right so what are what have your like main findings been on this because that's super interesting yeah I mean I think it's not really clear um mm -hmm. I think for a really long time we thought that plants were going to be really happy with the increase in carbon dioxide actually mm -hmm. because um they use carbon dioxide to right. make um sugars and starch um but it doesn't seem like they're actually taking up much more than what they were anyway um so i think um you know that was sort of a disappointment uh, for a lot of people um what we're seeing more is just um first that the increase in temperature means that they are um sort of shutting off more. And so the reason for this is that plants um, have, they need water inside mm -hmm. inside of them. So that's kind of right. what them, you know, like up upright and like kind of um, keep like their shape. Structures. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they also need the water actually um, for uh, the hydrogens because when they're making those sugars, they're taking the the carbon from the CO2 and then they're putting it together with the, the hydrogen from the water uh -huh. to make long like carbon hydrogen chains, right? Those yeah. carbohydrates. Um, so they need water inside of them. And the way they take in carbon dioxide is through those pores that are called stomata that are at the usually at the bottom of the leaf. Um, and so they can open them to let the CO2 in. But when the CO2 comes in, there's just water vapor that kind of leaves diffuses out of the leaf from that those holes because it's just an opening literally into the interior of the of the leaf and so the water comes out um and plants you know don't really like that so they're usually always trying to balance how much carbon they're letting in versus how much water they're losing and so a big effect that we're seeing from increased temperature is that when it becomes too hot the water just starts going out so fast that they're going to close those stomata, those openings, mm -hmm. because they don't want to be losing too much water. Right, yeah. Um, and the reason they don't want to lose too much water is because it takes a lot of work to like extract it from the soil and then bring it up. And then if it's leaving too fast at the top, then sometimes there are air bubbles forming and it can really essentially kill the plant if they're losing too much water too fast. Mm -hmm. So they're going to close the stomata, and then if they close the stomata, there's no carbon dioxide coming in. Yeah. Um, so if the temperature is too hot, essentially they're going to stop taking in um, CO2. Uh, and the same thing also happens, and it's sort of usually you know happening sort of at the same time, is that if the soil is too dry, and there's no water to extract from the soil, then it's sort of the same thing, right? If they're like, there's water coming out, but there's no water that, that can come up and replenish, then they're also going to shut the stomata and stop taking up CO2. Um, yeah. And we've seen this, um, you know, one, one um, example that I think is really interesting is that in, in 2010, there was this big drought in the Amazon mm -hmm. uh, basin and Essentially, the, the Amazon forests like kind of shut down because there wasn't enough water. Um, and then it essentially emitted um, CO2 because there's still decomposition happening. So the mm -hmm. leaves are breaking, breaking down. And when they break down, there's CO2 um, and going back right. to the atmosphere. So there was no CO2 being taken up by the live vegetation because mm -hmm. of the drought and there's all the CO2 being you know let out by by um decomposition, decomposition yeah and so the it essentially I think came down to about 10 percent of anthropogenic emissions for that year were released that that uh season during the dry season uh by the forest so it, it, a pretty oh, significant wow. amount of of CO2 being released because there was not enough water for the plants to function. 
Um, and so I think that that interplay is something that like sometimes people don't really realize is happening. Um, and that, you know, everybody think about like all those rainforests stars, like oh, the lungs of the earth, but really they're sort of carbon neutral. Usually they take in as much CO2 as they release from decomposition. And if there's something like too much heat, not enough water, that means that they're not taking in the CO2, they end up actually net emitters of CO2. So. Wow, that's scary. I I, I think I used to think that like with global warming, the there's an increase in temperature. So I thought plants would be happier, right? Like there is more temperature. Um, so maybe they're, they wouldn't be as like, maybe they'd be okay with the higher temperature and they would be able to adjust to it, but like they'd be happier because they can do more biologic stuff. Um, that That's how I used to think, but that's definitely not true. Cause then you have like, um, so basically water is like the blood of the plant. Like if they lose too much, um, they, it, it's, they're kind of dead. So, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, what we were just mentioning about uh, how California has like, we're seeing these rainfall events that are like bigger rainfall events, but less frequent. That's also, you know, part of the problem because, um, yeah. if you have a lot of rain and then no rain for a really long time, then that doesn't help the plants so much, right? They much prefer just a little bit of rain every day oh, than yeah. like a big downpour. Um, so um, that's also part of the issue, right? It's sometimes some places haven't seen a decrease in rainfall itself, but more variation, which is also um, mm -hmm. becoming a problem, so. Yeah, absolutely. I Like like you mentioned, they it's, it's better like, a little bit every single day than just all of it at once. Cause I mean, even if the, the, they just can't take all of that at once, I think. And exactly. yeah. So like, I think, so I read that you were studying like isotopes and things. So what are some of the important isotopes that you study in the lab and why are they important? Um, yeah, so I use isotopes as a tracer. So really more just to like follow water around Mm -hmm. And I use isotopes of water, and water is oxygen, hydrogen. So I use isotopes of oxygen and hydrogen. Yeah. Um, I use stable isotopes, so they're not uh, like unlike radioactive isotopes, right? They're just um, they're always there. Yeah. Yeah, they're always there. They're not like um, sort of disappearing. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I use deuterium, which is hydrogen two, so it has one proton, one neutron. Mm -hmm. And I use oxygen 18, um, which has two extra neutrons. Um, and what's interesting about these is that when you make a water molecule and you put, for example, instead of your normal oxygen 16, you take, you put an oxygen 18, mm -hmm. um, there's going to be a few different things that will work differently. First, if this molecule of water with the O18 in it is in liquid water, it's going to be a little harder for that molecule to sort of detach and go into the vapor phase. Because mm -hmm. it's like heavier, it's bigger. It's heavier, so it kind of stays behind. Yeah. So we can use the isotopes of water to trace um, how much evaporation is happening because if I have a pool of water, like a, a pan of water, and I let it sit for you know a day, and then I come back, it's going to have lost the O16 and the hydrogen one more mm -hmm. than it will have lost the O18 and the hydrogen two. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can measure the composition um, in those two isotopes at first, and then you know at the end of the day, and I can. Um, get a sense for how much evaporation happened. Um, and so that's interesting, uh, for example, for plants, it's interesting for soils because right. it gives us information of like, oh, this leaf has lost a lot, a lot more water than the other because I can see there is more oxygen 18 and deuterium to so those heavy isotopes left in the leaf that's transpired more. Um, right. And then the second interesting thing about those isotopes is that they, um, once they're in vapor phase, they tend to diffuse a little slower. Mm -hmm. Again, because they're a little heavier, so they're a little bit more sluggish. 
Um, and so again, we can get a little bit more information on then on like um, whether there was any diffusion process happening, for example, out of the water vapor diffusing out of the leaf. So again, um, we can use the stable isotope to trace um, the water. And then the last thing is that um, there's a lot of very unique signatures. Um, so if I take um, a river versus um, the water inside the plant and the water inside the soil, they're going to have very different um, isotopic composition. So very different amount of O18 and deuterium. And so, for example, by looking at the water inside the plants, then we can um, actually get out at how uh, get the information on how much water came from the soil versus you know the river mm -hmm. versus different sources. So we can we can kind of trace um, the water coming into a place if I know the isotopic composition of the elements. So I can know how much came from right. Yeah, so it's like you're tracing your own water cycle and you're able exactly. to exactly yeah. And we are actually doing this at this point raise experiment because there's a lot of fog. And so we are collecting, uh, we're starting to set up to collect fog water. Uh there's a little stream, so water from the stream, water from the soil, and then we're going to look at what the water inside the plants looks like mm -hmm. and how much comes from fog versus the soil versus um the rain. So and river, so kind of all the different elements um, using stable isotopes. Stable isotopes are very useful. <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah, I was also thinking like they could be used in the experiment to see like where where the everything's going and um you know wh like what are the sources of the water. So that's it's like your proxy for um you know your the measurements you do. Yeah, so that makes sense. Exactly. Um, and like. Like talking about the water cycle and the carbon cycle, um, how have these um cycles, if at all, how have they changed over geologic history? Um, so like I was thinking about this yesterday, and I was thinking like maybe it's that the sources of the water or the carbon have changed, but not really like how they move. But I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um. So we can use the isotopic composition of um, of the oxygen to look at um, temperature as well, because um, it gives us information about um, the temperature when like the CO2 is exchanging with this water. Um, and so there is some information, for example, in air bubbles trapped in ice. Um, I don't do too much of that, um, but um, but it's something we can do. And we can also look at, for example, O17, which is another stable isotope of oxygen, which also gives us information about um, um, some uh, new processes. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of things that can be done uh, using stable isotopes. Um, and you know, I think maybe one of my favorite application is actually uh, forensics. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. You can that. tell about like, you know, where people have been, like what water they've been drinking, for example, from the isotopic composition of their hair um, or what food they've eaten. Um, so it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of different applications um, that we can use stable isotopes for. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really funny because some of the stuff like the stuff in science class that we learn at school, all of that can basically be applied to forensics. And I think like <laughs> it's like a super um, awesome way of applying science in a way for justice, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, of course, like throughout this, like that throughout the stuff we've talked about so far, I can I can really see like you're interested in what you're doing. So like. How did you get interested in geology? I know you started there. So how did you get interested in geology and um, hydrology in the first place? Um, so I can actually kind of pinpoint exactly like the thing that made me really want to go into geology, um, which was um, learning about hotspots in high school. Um, so and learning specifically about Hawaii and how mm -hmm. There's this hotspot of like magma coming up, and then 
the the plate at the surface is moving and so um, this hotspot is sort of making islands and then you know the plate is moving a little bit and so it makes a new island and then it moves and it makes like a new island and so now we have this chain of islands that um is essentially coming from the same hotspot but can show us how the plate has moved um over that hotspot. And I thought that was like really fascinating um, and really cool. And so I wanted to go into geology, geophysics um, because of that. And then, I mean, I think the hydrology part was sort of, um, I think just something that seemed like it was important for people. Um, and, and so it seemed like a good application because, you know, I think the the, the hotspot thing was kind of interesting and cool, but it seemed like it was kind of missing. Um, yeah, I don't know, like something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, trying to 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 make you know be useful to society. Um, mm -hmm. In, I'm not saying that volcanologists are not, uh, but um, at least for me, it seemed like I wanted maybe something um, a little more connected. And water was sort of that connection um, between the geology and like, um, and people, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, um, I also think volcanology is fascinating, but I, I agree with you in that um, having that, we're having it like applied to humans and really your life, like you can, you can literally get a glass of tap water and then just measure like the stable isotopes in it and see what, what, like what, what is, its journey, where does this come from, and learn so much about it. Lava, I wish I could touch, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that totally makes sense. I think um, just like going a little bit deeper into the research you're doing with like dew and fog, how does, how does um, these sources of water, like how do they move through the plant system? Um, so they can interact in a few different ways. Um, one way is to simply kind of just like trickle down, you know, it, it collects on the leaves and then it kind of trickles down. I mean, it rolls off the leaf and then rolls off the stem and then gets to the soil and there it gets mm -hmm. taken up by the roots. Um, we also know that some plants are actually capable of like kind of sucking in the water that's on the surface. Um, not all plants can do it, but um, there's a surprising number that can. Um, Any examples so I can know what which? Um, there's actually quite a few, um, like conifers seem to do mm -hmm. it quite a bit. Um, so different types of, of pines and um, yeah, they, the junction uh, between the needles um, is sort of a this weakness spot where water can come in. Um, but yeah. that means that essentially, instead of having to extract the water from the soils, bring it up all the way to the leaves, they can kind of just like replenish the water straight from the leaves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, people hadn't really realized they were doing this until pretty recently. Um, so, so that's kind of a, that's very interesting. And then mm. actually for my PhD, I also just looked at how, um, Essentially, by being wet from dew fog, um, where you know you can have the leaf is wet, but then the sun is out and it's pretty hot. Um, by just like being wet and being colder because they're wet um, and they're, the water is evaporating, and as it evaporates, it cools down because you need to you know give energy out to evaporate right. the evaporative water. cooling. Exactly. Um, it also kind of helps the leaves like save up some uh, water because then they're cooler and so they, you know, there's not as much water evaporating. Um, so there's some interaction sort of more in like the energy balance, um, if you want. Um, so how much there's less energy coming into the leaf when they're wet from dew or fog. Um, so, um, yeah, kind of many different ways that this, this water can interact. Um, and I think because it's, uh, you know, it's not wetting the soil as much as rain, we can, we can actually kind of see those subtle, um, differences. Whereas if you have a big rainfall, right, like 
the water goes into the soil and then it gets taken up. And, and if there's any smaller effects, they're much harder to track. Um, where I think we can see those subtleties with smaller amounts of water like dew or fog. So I think it's mm -hmm. a very kind of neat sources of water for plants that um, are very important, for example, in California, because there's a lot of fog and yeah. not much rain. So mm -hmm. yeah, and they're like, like you said, easier to study when they have like, if you have big rainfalls, it just keeps like pounding down on the soil. And that's mostly like the biggest thing that takes up the water. But if you have fog, there's like more slow um, inf infiltration of the water. Um, yeah. So like, does the, so when the water is on the leaf, there, like you said, there is like changes in um, like external changes. So like effects with like absorption with the sun, maybe you have like water droplets, I think they're like lighter, right? So maybe they reflect more sunlight. Yeah, exactly. That's part of it um, is that it reflects uh, the sun in parts. And then again, so that's one effect. And then the other one is that cooling um, from the droplets like slowly evaporating. So it's sort of actually like those two, those two effects. Um, yeah. Yeah, gotcha. So like a net cooling of the, of the plant. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. If I was a plant, I would like to be cold. <laughs> yeah. Although it actually means that they tend to not uh, do photosynthesis as much either, uh, interestingly, because the whole sort of machinery inside the leaf operates at like a, there's like a perfect temperature range that it likes mm -hmm. for, you know, the different proteins to work. Um, and I'm not a biologist. So, um, but there, there is a, a temperature that's not too, too cold, you know, um, and, and when the leaves are wet, especially if it's like the morning and like the air is also a little like, um, cold still, um, essentially being wet means usually that they start photosynthesizing a little later because they're mm -hmm. too cold, um, from being wet. So there's sort of, yeah, a weird balance between, um, Again, not losing too much water, but also trying to take as much right. CO2. Um, so it's sort of the 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 big theme of my research is like how are plants kind of balancing those two things um, constantly? Oh yeah, that's that's like the big what's the what's the purpose of life for plants? I guess <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how can I balance my CO two and H two O? Exactly right. So like, how does um these how do these cycles or like in the plant um right we talked about like how the it changes when you have climate change um so you have plants like basically being closed off because it's like the the h2o will just be released right away um if it's if the stomata is open so like what does that mean for the future of climate change and carbon fluxes um I don't know that we have a good answer for this <laughs> um, because I think it depends a lot on species. It depends a lot mm. on the location and what the climate is. Um, you know, I think overall we're all pretty um, worried about, you know, again, this, the fact that rainfall is going to become more, um, more variable. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a clear sort of, uh, the warming um, in the boreal um, regions, so mm -hmm. like high latitudes, especially in yeah. you know uh, the Americas and 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 Eurasia. I mean, it means that things are going to grow better at higher latitude than they used to. Um, but obviously, like you know, is that something? I mean, it's it's a consequence, right? It's it's not. Um, um, you know, inherently good or bad. It's just, it's just what's going to happen. Um, but um, I think overall, the consequence is going to be a shift in 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 species because you know we're going species are going to be adapted to um, to the way the climate is changing, and so some things that used to be adapted somewhere uh, might not fare well with you know the new norms in terms of rainfall and temperature and so mm -hmm. a new species is going to come in um i think that's sort of the um the one thing that we sort of know for sure but again i think no one has an answer for this and it's 
yeah, uh, sort of trying to get a sense for it, but it's um, so uh, variable depending on location and plant species and so. Yeah, that's like the goal we're trying to get to, but um, like you said, like, like I think I mentioned earlier, there's not one solution for all, there's not one answer for all locations. The earth is so um, diverse, so you need to, I, I, I get it, it makes, it, it's like, we know it in some parts, but we can't really say what's the overall outcome. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So what do you think maybe some solutions are to climate change and um, maybe some that you've seen implemented or some you just think, oh, maybe this could work? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a difficult question. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's, um, I think um, choosing our energy sources really carefully is um, key because, um, at some level, we need to have sort of a big scale, um, you know, will to to change things. And so um, it can be great, you know, to be doing things at this small personal scale, but then if the power you're getting is from a coal power plant, um, as it is in many parts of this country, um, then it's, it gets kind of washed down very quickly. Um, so I think, um, you know, for me, one of the biggest and most important thing is to switch, um, you know, electricity production to clean, um, yeah. to clean energy. And, you know, I mean, obviously, um, um, nuclear power plants are, have a lot of other issues and I don't know that they are the solution. Um, I, so I sort of, uh, I think, I think the, the improvement that we're making in, you know, solar and wind um, electric, electric city production is, is great. Um, can nuclear power plant help us bridge, uh, you know, sort of the, the time that we need to get to um, a place where um, we can rely more on, you know, wind and solar, um, I don't know, or is solar at sort of the personal scale, the solution? Um, it's a little unclear, I think, yet, mm -hmm. but, I, you know, I think a, a real sort of decision and shift towards clean energy um, at the high level, I mean, state or federal level is is going to be key. Um, yeah, for sure. I think I I'm so nuclear power plants. I think are like like you said, they might help us in in switching from coal to more like cleaner sources of energy. But I think that um, because we have like a diverse um, like diverse sources of energy, you have solar, you wind, um, there's there's the hydro, there's geothermal. And I think that if we implement those different answers at different places, because I mean like having solar energy in a place that is like super covered by vegetation is not the best way to do it. But if you use like maybe hydro, uh, hydro um, energy, uh, then you can like harness that power in that area and then have cleaner energy. Yeah, so I think there's there's sort of a, a broad range of of options, um, and it's yeah, just I think a question of trying to move to those non-polluting options, um, you know, quickly, um, and and it's difficult. Uh, so then there needs to be incentives to do so um, mm -hmm. because it's. Um, um, they're still tend to be a little more expensive, not, I mean, you know, it depends at which scale, but overall uh, in some places it's, it's, it's going to need a little bit of a, I think a political push um, <laughs> to it, essentially. That's my, um, my feeling um, at this point. So I absolutely agree with that. I think there needs to be some incentive to do, to like be more green, mm -hmm. but I guess for now, like what, what um for, cause I think, every person can change something in their life to be more green. I know there's people who are like zero waste. They're planting like gardens and nice trees around them. 
um, and like doing more outreach to people. So what do you think are some small changes that are, are just like doable changes people can do um, in their yeah. life? I mean, um, you know, I think sort of the classic ones, like try not to take uh, the car too much. Um, and uh, so like, yeah, we, in my family, we go around with um, electric cargo bikes um, oh, with the kids <laughs> and all their stuff. Um, and our all of our electricity, you know, we buy into uh, renewable only um, electricity. Um, so, and and because the the bike is electric, it means that we can get to places that we wouldn't be able to get to if it wasn't electric with you know two small kids. So, um, you know, it's. Um, it's important, and Berkeley actually has a lot of hills, so it's it's very helpful to have the electric assist to get you up and down the hills, which um, which you couldn't do with a normal bike. Um, so that's you know that's one thing. I think we've all become much more aware of like flying, and and I think the pandemic has helped a little bit with that overall. And you know. Um, flying, making sure that we're flying for reasons that like. Are worth it um and i think you know being able to like talk to people on zoom like we're all gotten so much better at it and like i'm hoping that some things um sort of stay online um because i think um they'll kind of help us you know avoid useless uh air travel that is also uh has a massive carbon footprint so um that's you know i think those are two big things um and i mean yeah we for example i i try uh very hard to you know buy second hand and exchange things um i mean this area has a pretty um active um you know sort of buy nothing <laughs> uh, like spirit so people are always kind of trying to trade and if you there's something that you're not using anymore you'll usually be able to find someone uh who wants it and wants to make use of it and give it a second life so um you know those are smaller things but i think they're important and i think they're important for the climate i think they're also important for pollution in general which is you know, kind of an issue on its own, um, uh -huh. uh, plastic pollution, especially, um, which is something that I, I mean, I don't really know about it from a scientific point of view, but I just, it's something that I care about. And so I, I try pretty hard to limit, um, you know, single use plastics and um, buying things new if I can avoid it essentially. So. Yeah, those are some great strategies, and I and I want to bite. <laughs> I would. Um. Uh. So I think that like having um like your community is so well um informed about like ways to um prevent pollution is a great way to start um by like like training things instead of just throwing it away. I think that's um important for everyone to follow. Um. I think another thing I was thinking about was the pandemic um, and how that much, how, how that pandemic has been good in some ways where it's taught us about using technology more than actually needing to go to places. So I remember during the pandemic, there was a conference that was online. I would, and I was thinking, wow, a lot of people would have to fly to get here, but we're able to do the conference and almost like, almost as well as doing it in person. And I think things, things like gatherings like that, um, are it, it's good to like put them online and prevent um you know like think about the climate but of course like family gatherings go but you know there's things like mm -hmm. um just whatever is whatever makes sense to put online is mm -hmm. is something that we've learned over covid and i think just taking those um lessons we've learned and following them will be the most important thing we can do yeah i agree and um and I mean, I think I, you know, understand that in some contexts it's helpful to be face face to face, but I think mm -hmm. we're moving to probably, I think, 
at least more hybrid formats where you have the option of not going. Um, and I think that's already like very helpful because it means that if you're going, like you're going because you like really want to and you're gonna make the most out of it. And if you if you have the option to like be online um, and have a great experience, then that's kind of a great trade-off there, so. Absolutely, yeah. So another like aspect of this podcast is to get like provide um, knowledge and education to like the public and parts of that public are the young and underrepresented people. So, so what would, what, what advice would you give to um, people who want to, who are like leaning towards working in environmental science or just want to protect the environment in whatever way they can? Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's, I'm, uh, you know, I just want to encourage everybody <laughs> uh, to do so because it's uh, very important work and it's, you know, our planet, but, you know, the younger generations are the ones who are inheriting it. And I think it's um, important to to fight for it. Um, you know, I, I think seeking out opportunities to, um, to get experience um, and every possible way and I think you know the your podcast series is a great uh <laughs> kind of a great way um to do this for you and also to expose other people um to to what what it is that people do in this field uh what are the opportunities um and then you know I think um not being afraid to yeah contact people with questions or with you know asking for opportunities um Sometimes you need to email a lot of people to get an answer about, you know, an internship or um, something like that. But if you email enough people, like someone will answer and um, you kind of just need one person to say yes. So I've, uh, you know, myself, I, I usually, I'm, I'm not ashamed um, to just emailing people that I'm interested in in you know getting information from or that I want to ask a question to or that I want to work with um, and I've done this many times and it's actually like always worked out uh, in the end but again sometimes you need a, a large number so that someone <laughs> out of that large number answers but um, but you know you I think yeah um, Kind of not being afraid of of saying like this is what I want to do and um I want to learn more like help me learn more and someone someone will answer um so yeah just not being afraid <laughs> and if anyone would like to reach out to you how can they do so um yeah I I have a website uh I'm on Twitter um my email is on the university's um on the university's page as well. So um, yeah, feel free to reach out. Um, I, yeah, you should be able to find all my contact info. I don't know if you can have it on the page or you can- I can put it in the podcast description for this episode. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and feel free to to reach out with questions and opportunities. Um, yeah, sure. I will put all of those, um, like I said, in the description. And just to close off our lovely con conversation, which I've worked, which I've learned so much from, um, are there any other like interesting experiences in your career or just your life so far um, that you would like to share? Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess this is a series on uh, women in environmental science, and um, you know, I. I have two small children, one who is still an infant, and I think that's been a big part of um, who I am and, and sort of how my work is shaped and, and my relations have sort of changed from, from, uh, from having uh, two small children um, to take care of at the same time. And so I think that's, um, that's sometimes... Um, a tricky balance to find for a lot of people, uh, especially when you sort of first have those children. Uh, so, um, you know, I I don't think that I have any specific wisdom related to that, um, but um, 
yeah, I think I'm happy to kind of chat about that kind of experience as well, because sometimes it's it's harder nowadays to sort of find your village. And so um, if I can help create that village for someone else, you know, going through um, through the first phases of motherhood, I'm happy to also uh, having people reach out about that. <laughs> I think it's wonderful you put it out there because I think it's something we don't really talk about, but um please feel free to reach out to, to um, Dr. Cynthia about, about this stuff. Um, so yeah, for, I mean, I think throughout this conversation, I really learned about like, like the science behind um, plants and, and um, how they're, how that science is kind of changing with climate change and how we can always incorporate humans in the, in the mix. Cause we're always doing something to a system. Um, well, just to close off our lovely um, conversation, we've been talking to Dr. Cynthia, and I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts about all this stuff. Um, and I, I really appreciated your time. So thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Um, again, it's been a real pleasure to have this conversation. Um, and I uh, wish you um, good luck with uh, the rest of the series. It's been really interesting to listen to all the the many different uh, scientists you've had on this uh, podcast. So I'm very honored that uh, you reached out and that we were able to um, to have this chat. So it was great. Yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. And thanks to the listeners who are listening to this episode. <laughs>